Hi everyone, alongside my morning matcha, my other favorite ritual is diffusing Vitruvi's organic eucalyptus essential oil in their stone diffuser, which is pretty rare to find because nowadays everything's made from plastic. I'm also obsessed with their amazing branding. It looks super cute along my bedside, and I love that their premium quality oils are sourced from over 30 countries and are certified organic when possible. They're the leading digital first essential oils company, which basically means you get premium products at a fraction of the traditional essential oils price because there's no middleman. And with fans like GP and Vogue, they're changing the way essential oils are used and priced. I love Vitruvi for so many reasons, but mostly because their mission is simple. Help you take care of yourself so you can take on the world, which is basically what we're trying to do here at the fullest and morning matcha. So to try Vitruvi for yourself, just use the code MORNINGMATCHA20, that's all lowercase with two zero, the numbers at the end, so that you can get 20% off your order on Vitruvi.com. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Morning Matcha. I'm here today with Dr. Gundry, who's a heart surgeon, cardiologist, and author of New York Times bestseller, The Plant Paradox. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's so nice to meet you in person and get to ask you all the questions I have about Plant Paradox and just about what lifestyle you really recommend for people. Oh, great to be here. I really want to first start with your trajectory into all the health stuff, because there's a lot of cardiologists that don't care, maybe, or they do, but they just don't follow um, a certain set of just the alternative viewpoint. And I'd love to hear about what inspired you to be in cardiology and just kind of how you um, went on this path and really at the forefront of your industry. Well, uh, luckily, uh, when I went to Yale back in the dark ages, um, <laughs> we were able to design our own major, and we uh, could choose professors to um, defend a thesis with uh, through as an undergraduate degree. And I had this thesis that you could take a grade ape, manipulate its food supply, and manipulate its environment, and predict you would create a human being. Uh, wow. And so that was my thesis. And I actually defended the thesis, got an honors. And then I gave this nice big thesis to my parents who uh, put it in the shrine. And <laughs> then I went off to medical school. And in medical school at Georgia, I had a mentor who was the head of pediatric cardiology. And even as a first-year medical student, uh, you could follow your mentor around on rounds. And, and so I really got the bug for, for cardiology. And uh, after, you know, he said, you know, you're going to make a great pediatric cardiologist. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, I think I want to fix this rather than I love finding out what's wrong, but I want, I want to fix it. He said, oh, geez. He said, okay, <laughs> you know, go, go talk to the head of cardiac surgery. And so I, I became a pediatric heart surgeon as well as an adult heart surgeon and uh, eventually wound up at Loma Linda University uh, here in Southern California as professor and chairman of cardiothoracic surgery. And along with Leonard Bailey, my partner, we pioneered infant and pediatric heart transplants. And 
um, and also became famous for operating on people who nobody else wanted to. Wow. Um, so I should men mention, when I arrived at Loma Linda in 1989, I weighed uh, 158 pounds. And in the late 1990s, I had ballooned up to 228 pounds. Wow. Even though I was running 30 miles a week, going to the gym one hour every day, and eating a healthy, low-fat vegetarian diet, which was what the Adventists uh, mm -hmm. promoted. And I couldn't figure out, you know, I was doing everything right. And yeah. here I was, you know, sporting about 70 more pounds than when I arrived. And I had arthritis, I had pre-diabetes, I had high blood pressure. And had, how old were you? I, well, I was in, uh, I was uh, in my 40s. Yeah. Wow. So uh, early, early 50s. So I met a guy who was sent to me for unoperable coronary artery disease. Big Ed, as I call him in both <laughs> books. And Big Ed was 48 years old. And when I met him, he weighed 265 pounds. And he had all the coronary arteries all were clogged up with plaque. And you couldn't put stents in because there wasn't any place to put them. You couldn't do bypasses because there wasn't any place to put bypasses. Wow. And he'd been going around the country. He was from Miami looking for people to operate. And I'm one of those people. And he spent about six months doing this and arrived at Loma Linda. And I looked at his movie from six months earlier, uh, the angiogram of his heart. And I said, eh, yeah, everybody's right. There's nothing we're going to do for you. He said, well, yeah, that's what everybody says. But, you know, here's the deal. I've been on a diet, and I've lost 45 pounds in six months. Now, this is a big guy still. Mm -hmm. And he says, and I went to a health food store, and I'd been taking all these supplements. And he literally has this big shopping bag full of supplements. And he says, you know, maybe I did something in here. And, you know, I'm, I'm scratching my professor beard going, well, you know, good for you for losing weight, but that's not going to do anything here. And I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I really believe that. And he said, well, come on. You know, why don't we just get a new angiogram, a new movie, and see? You know, I rolled my eyes. I said, oh, okay. So the next day we get an angiogram on him. And this guy, in six months' time, had cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his heart. Gone. Wow. Now, I'd never seen anything like that, never been taught anything like that. It was impossible. But there it was, you know, staring me in the face. So unfortunately, I did a five-vessel bypass on him uh, because now there are actually places to put bypasses. Now, if I knew what I knew now, I'd go, you know, hey, good for you. Uh, let's keep going because this, you know, we've solved the problem. But the researcher in me, after I did it, said, so, you know, tell me about this diet. And he starts describing what he's been eating. And he gets, I don't know, a couple sentences in. I said, wait a minute, time out. I said, this is the diet I described for my thesis at Yale, you know, back in the dark ages. And I said, this is exactly what I said we, you know, we ate. And so I called my folks up. I said, do you still have my thesis? And they said, yeah, yeah, it's here next to the eternal flame. And so I said, send it up to me. And they were in San Diego at the time. And so and then I said, let me see these supplements. And so I started going through this bag of supplements. And I said, you know, how'd you come up with this? And he says, oh, you know, I went to the health food store and they said, oh, you know, you ought to do this. You know, I do this. And he <laughs> said, I don't know what I'm taking. So uh, I was famous for resuscitating dead hearts for 
transplantation. We could take a heart from a dead baby for an hour and resuscitate it. And, and we resuscitated it by putting chemicals mm-hmm. uh, down the veins and arteries of the heart. And so as I'm pulling these things out, some of these things were what I had concocted to put down the veins and arteries of the heart to resuscitate them. Wow, like what? Well, like for instance, like alpha lipoic acid, just, just throw one out. Oh, and, and then the supplements contain yeah, yeah, contained yeah. It. And so it never occurred to me to swallow, you know, these things. So uh, long story short, I put myself on my thesis and I started swallowing a ton of supplements. And I started sending my blood work up to uh, the University of California, Berkeley, which had an amazing lipid lab at that time called Berkeley Heart Labs. And I lost 50 pounds my first year. And my arthritis went away, my high blood pressure went away, my cholesterol was perfect, my prediabetes went away, and people noticed. And so my staff went on the program, and the same things happened to them. And then I started putting my patients who I operated on on the program. Prior to operating? No, actually after I I operated on. And then after about a year of doing this and seeing the results, my wife still calls it Black Friday. I was looking in the mirror and I said, you know, I just, I can't do this anymore. I can't operate on people and then tell them how to avoid me, you know, going forward. I should teach them how to avoid me, period. Mm-hmm. Now, that's really dumb uh, because even in academics, a heart surgeon makes a decent living. Mm-hmm. But teaching people how to eat, yeah. You really yeah. can't make a very good living. At yeah, this. you put yourself out of a job. Yeah. And people say, What are you doing this for? You know, you're putting yourself out of a job. And I said, Yeah, I know. So I resigned my position at Loma Linda and wow. set up a, a clinic in Palm Springs. And all I ask people to do is, you know, let me take a bunch of blood out of you every three months and you know, send it to labs and, you know, then insurance will pay for, Medicare will pay for, Medi-Cal will pay for. And I want to ask you to eat certain things and not eat other things. And let's see what happens with you and your blood work. And so that resulted in my first book, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution. And after that book came out 10 years ago, a lot of people with autoimmune disease showed up in my office because I had shown a couple people with autoimmune disease in that book that had reversed. You shared about it. Oh, yeah. And so they'd, they'd come into my office, you know, and, and here I am kind of practicing preventive cardiology and not operating very much. And they'd say, what do you know about autoimmune disease? And I said, well, you know, I really don't know anything about autoimmune disease, but I'm a transplant immunologist. I know how to fool the immune system. I know what the immune system is looking for, and I know how to fool it. Mm -hmm. And I said, so if you want to play, let's play, and let's see what the immune system is looking for in you. And so luckily there have been some very nice blood tests that can predict who would be susceptible to certain plant compounds that are called lectins. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a bunch of papers showing that there's some markers in people's blood that would predict that they're going to react to certain lectins in plants. And How did you hone in on lectins, though? Uh, that's a great story. And I talk about it in The Plant Paradox. Um, I had a patient who was a very early adapter of my first book. 
and uh, I call him Tony in, in the book. And Tony had vitiligo. Uh, vitiligo is the skin condition where you lose the pigment. Oh. Uh, Michael Jackson yeah. had vitiligo, and everything gets pale. Mm-hmm. And so he had really bad, good-looking guy you know, in his 40s, and he had vitiligo on his hands. They were all patchy mm-hmm. white, and he had quite a bit on his face. And when he adapted my program, he called me up. He's also from San Diego. And he says, hey, I got to see you. You got to see this. So he comes into the office and he holds out his hands and the vitiligo is gone. And he said, what do you think about that? And I said, wow, you know, that's amazing. He said, well, how'd that happen? And, you know, I'm going, well, see, this is a very anti-inflammatory diet, blah, blah, blah. He said, nah, 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 that's too easy. Turns out melanocytes are the cells in our skin that make pigment. Um, And melanocytes are actually modified nerve cells. And they come out while your baby's being born. They they move from your spinal cord into your skin. And so they're actually nerve cells in your skin. And I said, now, why he was attacking these modified nerve cells in his skin, and now he's not attacking them? You know, what's with that? So it turns out that insects were the original plant predator. Mm -hmm. Uh, Plants were actually here first. They had it really good uh, because nobody wanted to eat them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And plants are subject to evolutionary pressures, just like animals are. They want to grow and they want to have their babies survive and grow. So when insects, which were the first predator, uh, moved on to land or appeared on land, Plants had a problem because they couldn't run, they couldn't hide, and they couldn't fight. But they're chemists of incredible ability. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can turn sunlight into matter, and we haven't figured out how to do that. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they make a number of compounds, one of which are called lectins. And lectins are proteins. They're called sticky proteins. Uh, We actually type people's blood using plant lectins. Uh, And we make blood cells clump together depending on the lectin that binds to them. Mm -hmm. So long story short, lectins are used by plants to paralyze insects. They actually cause the nerve cells to die. So I'm sitting there going- Who knew how evil plants can be? Oh yeah. (laughs) Plants don't like us. You know, I mean, they want to grow and have a life and they want their babies (laughs) to grow and have a life. And so, you know, this is war. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't put here for us to come by and munch on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, people you know, are naive about that. They have their own life. And they, they know, for instance, like I talk in the book, if an insect starts munching on this leaf of a eucalyptus, uh, within 10 minutes, the leaves on the other side of the tree will produce far more lectins because they've communicated that they're under attack. Wow. Anyhow, so... Long story short, I found out that what he was doing, he was attacking his modified nerve cells as if they were lectins. And when we took lectins, certain lectins away from him, he no longer attacked his nerve cells and they grew back. That's incredible. I've got this uh, amazing young woman who has, she's luckily blonde, but she's total body vitiligo. She, She had no pigmentation. And um, she tried everything. So she finally came to me uh, about a year ago now. And uh, we put her on the program. 
And a few months into it, uh, she came back and she rolls up her sleeve and she's got all these patches of, of pigment. And she said, look at that. And I, I said, oh, that's really cool. And she said, I call them Gundry Islands. <laughs> and I saw her actually a few weeks ago, and she's got this now great big patch on her back of of normal of normal skin. That's and, so and she cool. Says, you know, she says, just look, you know, it's, it's coming back. And, you know, who would have believed? Yeah. yeah. So then at that point, you started incorporating that into your own diet as well? Yeah. Well, I actually started doing that um, back with what with my diet that I did at Loma Linda that I'd written about at Yale mm-hmm. and I started taking away certain foods um, which included most of the grains and beans and the nightshade family mm-hmm. potatoes eggplant tomatoes peppers believe it or not goji berries are nightshade wow and I also took away peanuts and cashews, which are actually American beans. Mm -hmm. And um, I know know, I used to have such bad arthritis, I'd wear braces on my knees to run and my arthritis went away. And it's really fun watching people uh, see a a number of women with little, with nodules on their, Mm -hmm. on their joints. And they figure it's just getting old and you watch them, their nodules shrink and, you know, it's so much fun reading like on Amazon reviews of someone who, you know, couldn't even move their joints mm-hmm. and now their joints are totally flexible. So do you have stages of going on the diet or? Yeah. Uh, well, the first stage is well, I basically tell people that you're going to hate me for a couple of weeks <laughs> and, and then you're going to like me. Mm-hmm. And really what I try to get people to do is uh, literally have a two page list. Uh, a no page and a yes page. Mm-hmm. And one of the principles that I try to get people to understand, it's it's not what I tell you to eat that's important. It's what I tell you not to eat that's mm-hmm. really going to make all the difference in the world. And so I kind of let people design what they want to eat as long as they're avoiding certain foods. That makes sense. And that's it's actually, number one, it's pretty empowering because I'm not going to tell you, oh, you know, you have to have... 12 cups of kale every day, Yeah. Um, which is, please don't do that, by the way. Um, (laughs) But I do tell them, no, you're not going to have any bread anymore. You're not going to have any wheat. You're not going to have your oatmeal. Um, You're not going to have corn chips. Uh, If you're going to have tomatoes, you're going to peel and de-seed them because Mm -hmm. the peels and the seeds have have the lectins and so on. And uh, if I can get people to do that, Number one, they're they're going to grumble, and but then they start noticing that things change. Their brain fog goes away, for instance. Their joints feel better. Their clothes get looser, which is a nice side effect uh, for most people. Mm-hmm. And then they go, hmm, and, you know, I guess I can do this. And then what happens with my autoimmune patients? And about fifty percent of my practice is now autoimmune patients. Wow! Is if they cheat. You know, we can actually, uh, I've given one paper already, and I have a paper accepted for the American Heart Association in March of 102 people with diagnosed autoimmune diseases like lupus, like MS, like rheumatoid arthritis. Is Alzheimer's an autoimmune? You know, that's a great question. Um, Alzheimer's is not an autoimmune disease, but there are people like 
Dale Bredesen, who's a friend of mine who wrote The End of Alzheimer's, another best-selling book, mm -hmm. uh, and myself, who believe that part of Alzheimer's comes from an alteration in our gut microbiome mm -hmm. and from leaky gut. Mm -hmm. And I used to think that leaky gut maybe existed in only a few people. I now believe that leaky gut exists in actually almost every Western diet person. Wow. And Alzheimer's never, ever used to exist. Uh, and now it's an epidemic. And mm -hmm. so this has come not from something that's initially happening in our brain, but it's actually happening from our gut. And I talk about that in the plant paradox as mm -hmm. well. How about intermittent fasting and the gut? Yeah, so a lot of good reasons to intermittent fast. Uh, one of the things that we have to realize is that when we eat, uh, we actually are bombarded with pieces of bacteria that leak through the wall of our gut or hop on to saturated fats to ride through the wall of our gut. Oh, and these, and they're called, they're called LPSs, uh, lipopolysaccharides. Um, I don't swear, but in the book, I can't help but call them little pieces of shit um, <laughs> because that's what but they, they are. are. And, our body thinks that we're under attack by bacteria. And so that's actually one of the originating causes of inflammation of our body thinks it's under attack by bacteria. So every time you eat, uh, you shower your bloodstream with billions of pieces of bacteria. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if you don't eat, uh, there is a period of time when, number one, that back, those bacteria don't hop through the wall of your gut. But perhaps even more important, the longer you go without eating, believe it or not, the bacteria have nothing to eat in your gut, and so they're not reproducing, and so your bacterial population shrinks, and so you don't have all, <clears throat> me, all these guys getting through into your uh, system. At all times, yeah. yeah. And one of the terrible things we've done in recommendations from nutritionists is we ought to have six small meals a day. Yeah. Our gut never goes to rest. And our, we are constantly actually pouring these pieces of bacteria into our, into our body. The other thing we have to realize uh, that we came from a species of animal that didn't have food all the time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that make us human and unique is we're really the only great ape that's capable of storing fat. Um, gorillas and chimps have 3% body fat. Uh, to give people an idea of what that is, a professional bodybuilder tends to compete at about 7 to 8% body fat. And they, they can't contain that for very long and they kind of float up to 10 yeah. or 11 percent body fat so it's if you think that a, you know a great ape is three percent body fat they just have no fat that's unbelievable. and we uh, you're pregnant and you realize that your baby is going to be born fat mm -hmm. which from a design standpoint is really dumb um, mm -hmm. as you're going to find out pretty soon because a fat baby is a lot of work to get out of you 
Mm-hmm. And skinny yeah. babies are actually pretty easy to get out of you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you ever see newborn chimps or gorillas, they're the little skinny things. Mm-hmm. And then out pops this giant fat baby. <laughs> so we store fat for a very good reason, because that allowed your and my ancestors to to live in Siberia mm-hmm. and live off the fat that we stored during the summer. Uh, so we could we actually could migrate to places where you know a gorilla is kind of stuck. Uh, they have to have constant supply of, of leaves as they have to constantly eat. Mm-hmm. And you brought up seasonal so storing fat in the summer and earlier we were yeah. talking about seasonal eating and I love that I I mean I love the idea and you were mentioning that you do that in your own diet. Um, what about, well, tell us how that works, basically. So you don't intermittent fast during that time, or what do you do? Yeah, so, well, what I try to do, uh, I, I rarely, if ever, eat breakfast. And uh, Dr. Bredesen's work has shown that really the longer you go between meals, uh, the better for everything, for your brain function, just for everything. So... Mm-hmm. Needs to say when you're asleep, that's an easy time not to eat. So what he recommends and I recommend is you want to, if at all possible, have four hours between the last meal that you eat and the time you go to bed. Mm -hmm. And one of the cool things is um, when you eat, all the blood flow is directed down to your gut to digest food. Uh, When when I grew up, uh, my all mothers would tell you that you had to wait an hour after lunch before you could go swimming mm-hmm. because you would die of fatal cramps. <laughs> this was well known. And so, you know, they'd set your watch literally and you know, come on, mom. No, it's, you know, it's 50 minutes. You got to wait 10 more minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you can go swimming. Well, there's actually some truth to that old wives tale uh, because all the blood flow is directed into your gut. So if you went swimming, there wasn't any blood to your muscles and they would cramp and that would kill you because you drown. Wow. So what's the truth behind that is when we eat, most of our blood goes down to our intestines. So when we first go to sleep, there's a period of what's called deep sleep where the brain actually cleans itself out. It literally washes debris out of the brain. And you have to have that period of deep sleep to know whether or not your brain is cleaning. So the brain demands huge amounts of blood flow during that time. So the problem for most of us is we go out to eat or we have a job and we don't get home and get dinner on the table until six or seven and then we're exhausted and we go to bed at you know nine well we're still digesting food so there is no blood flow up to your brain during the most critical time Mm -hmm. and uh, i have a sleep tracker called an aura ring that's what this thing that's what that is that's so cool it it comes out of finland and the new one, this is a first generation, the new one will, will look like this wow. in, in different colors. Um, so, uh, and I have no relationship to them, but this is an amazing device. <laughs> it connects device. to your phone? Yeah, it connects to the cool. phone. So it follows my deep sleep patterns. It follows my REM patterns. Anyhow, <laughs> so you got to have deep sleep to clean your brain. And you can demonstrate that if you eat close to the time you go to bed, you never clean your brain out. Mm-hmm. So then, so let's suppose we get you know, eight hours of sleep. So there's eight hours of 
fasting. And then what you want to do is have about a 14-hour window. So you really don't want to eat again until maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So skipping breakfast is actually one of the most healthful things you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, during the winter, uh, I fast 22 out of 24 hours. I eat all my calories uh, between about 6 and 8 o'clock at night. So 22 hours I'm fasting during the week. And I do that from January through the first of June. And I've done wow. that for ten years now. Wow! So yeah, it's it's kind of funny. So I'm actually at, at my peak weight. I gain about ten pounds every summer, and then I take it off in the winter. So people, when they watch me on YouTube, uh, they'll watch my my face yeah. will will shrink during the <laughs> and winter, then go back. and then it'll go back in the summer. It's kind of it's kind of watch fun to watch my videos. Oh yeah, you know that was April. I was down. You know, so. That's how our ancestors worked because there were seasons mm-hmm. and there was a season in the summer and early fall when fruit ripened. And we actually studying great apes, great apes only gain weight during fruit season. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the jungle, fruit ripens once a year. And so the rest of the year, there isn't any fruit. So we kind of live on what we have and we forget that uh, our bodies, our programming doesn't understand that a 747 can bring blueberries to Costco in January from Chile. Yeah. (laughs) And we're not designed to eat blueberries in January. Mm -hmm. Um, Even in Southern California, we're not designed to eat blueberries. They didn't exist. We hybridized them. We bred them. And the other thing I talk about in the book is, you know, sugar is now candy. We used to say it's nature's candy. Well, it really is candy now. Mm -hmm. We bred it for sugar content. You know, you can go to the farmer's market down the street and you can find organic blueberries the size of grapes. Yeah. It's like, huh? You know, that's a miracle. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's horrible. Yeah, because they bred it to be that way, even if it's organic. Yeah, even if it's organic. So I'm curious about intermittent fasting again, but do you recommend it for everyone? And what about patients who, I just think it can turn into a situation where some people binge because they're nervous that they only have a certain number of hours and people who are susceptible to um, like body issues or food issues. How have you dealt with anyone like that? Yeah. And we have, we see a number of people who do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's actually been some research that uh, people who have a tendency to bulimia or anorexia mm-hmm. actually do fine on these programs mm-hmm. because, um, and uh, I, I can tell you, my younger daughter uh, used to be anorexic and bulimic. And she's actually thriving now. She's mm-hmm. in her mid thirties and married and runs my wife's store. Mm-hmm. But they're, so speaking from experience, yeah, they're incredibly good at control, mm-hmm. um, incredibly good at control. And so all you have to do is give them a new set of things to control and they actually do very well. And there's actually been some research uh, that shows that you will not get into trouble by doing this. But there are certain people who absolutely shouldn't do it. Pregnant women Mm -hmm. absolutely shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. If you want want to get pregnant, you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. As many women know, Uh, Women gymnasts, women long-distance runners uh, have very low body fat. And you actually have a sensor 
that determines if you have enough body fat that if you get pregnant today, if a famine starts today, you will have enough fat to complete that pregnancy without eating. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have enough body fat to last you nine months, then you, you are not going to pop an egg because it's, yeah. not, it's not worth it. And it's, you know, we forget that a, a mother bear goes into the den pregnant and she doesn't eat for five months and she does just great. She actually feeds her kids off of her body fat. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. So my last question is, I know you have the plant paradox recipe book coming out. What is it called? The Plant, the Plant Paradox Cookbook. Cookbook. Yeah. So what's your favorite recipe in there? And are these recipes that you use yourself at home? Yeah. So, um, you know, we've, there's a lot of recipes in the Plant Paradox, but obviously this has become a very popular book and people go, come on, tell us, you know, we need more recipes. We need to eat. And one of the things I really wanted to do with this cookbook is to make sure that, for instance, a working mother could actually get food on the table for her family that her mm -hmm. family would recognize as not some foreign food. Yeah. So for instance, I've got a great waffle recipe. I've got a yeah. great pancake recipe. <laughs> and on the cover is a pizza. And the first thing people say it is, oh, there so goes good. my pizza. I can never have pizza again. And it's the pizza is designed by one of my friends and a great chef uh, at Burba in Palm Springs. Who, Tara uh, is her first name. And she uh, made a pizza out of cauliflower and Parmesan cheese. And we actually used some tomato sauce that doesn't have peels and seeds. It's actually really easy to do. And yeah, so people can that. have pizza and it's absolutely delicious. It's un unbelievable. I'm so excited to order a copy. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review, and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you, so keep in touch, and I'll see you next time.